Right now, humankind is on a crash course with Mother Nature, and there's no Planet B. Governments and mass media seem intent on sedating our urgency to act. The Disrupting Disaster podcast series will offer education, insight, interviews, and opportunities to act, and is proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. Welcome along to episode five of Disrupting Disaster. I'm James Lush. Uh, my colleague Charlie is with us, and we're going to talk today about motivating the masses. And despite repeated warnings from climate scientists, greenhouse gas emissions from human economic activity are continuing to rise, posing the risk that we may one day cross that threshold of dangerous climate change. Well, last week, Charlie caught everyone up with the outcomes of the Kyoto Protocol. However, this week, we're going to cover some interesting research from various cooperation studies and experiments from around the world into the outcomes and findings which have a powerful impact on the success of the climate negotiations this year in Paris. Uh, Charlie, you've been doing your research. You've been digging around. Let's uh, get an update from you on the meeting in Paris, what it's all about and what we can possibly hope to influence before then. Sure. Well, so at the end of this year in France, in Paris, it will be hosting the 21st session of the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention. They really love the acronyms uh, on climate change. But what's really easy way to reference to it is COP21. Cool. So that's what I'm going to say from this point forward because yeah. it's far too long. Um, or Paris 2015. And that's going to happen in November the 30th to December the 11th. And it's a crucial conference because it's aiming to achieve a new international agreement on climate change, which is applicable to all countries with the aim of hoping that we keep global warming below two degrees. Now, that means France will be playing a pretty significant role in leading this. Because it's taken us so long to actually get to this point, um, the stakes are now really high. And it's really, really important that for the first time a universal legally binding agreement uh, is, is made and we're then able to combat climate change effectively because the reality is right now we're suffering um, some significant losses in, in human life, in, in uh, that of nature. I mean, we're seeing news of... Um, temperatures experienced in Iran of 74 degrees and that's never ever been recorded and so there's some that, that's not an actual temperature that, that's a, a no, feel it's fact. a temperature index which is yeah. just an interesting so it fell like 70 yeah 74 I mean degrees. I can't imagine it that's like sauna isn't it well I think we've never I, I struggle to feel that we've actually never known what that feels like because that's we've never been there hot. but the fact that that is a scientific calculation. It's based on a lot of things like humidity and yeah. uh, it's not just sort of a number pulled out of anywhere. Um, that's kind of shocking and I think it's really hard for us to ignore that the, the um, ability for us to be successful in Paris is becoming well, critical. It is critical and it, it's a few months away. There's lots of talk at the moment with, with Paris being in November. There's a lot of preparation for that. The cynic in me says this is another fest, another talk fest. It also, I'm not the only one who thinks this, everyone who is involved in climate science is thinking exactly the same. It's just going to be a case of going through the debate but then going back to exactly where we are because that's, at the end of the day, a much easier option. So how likely are we to be able to have any influence prior to the event happening so that when they actually do get together, we could have something positive? 
Well, I think it's really important that we remember how powerful social media is and how powerful pressure is. And that really comes back to getting engaged on various different, um, you know, social media pages that are keeping governments accountable. Uh, I think we've got to, we'll probably do a podcast in the next couple of weeks about the uh, role of petitions and, and whether they're actually useful or not. But uh, there is a real reality that in Paris we will fail. And I don't think that that's something we can really afford. Um, so I thought we, we'd discuss a little bit on um, a topic that Mark Hurston, who spoke at the WSEN a few weeks ago, and he covered some really interesting uh, cooperation studies from around the world and which have related to how we might be successful mm. in Paris. Got and a some- cooperation study is effectively how people all work together for the, for the betterment of everyone. Correct, and uh, there's quite a few of them. We've actually think... We'll split them up over a few podcasts. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of pod, uh, there's quite a lot of content. But this is important, and and the reason it's worth investigating this is because if we don't have cooperation, quite frankly, we, we, there's no point in even getting together because we can put all the science out, which everyone would suggest that that science is fairly conclusive. But if we don't have human beings cooperating, it's irrelevant. Well, that's right, and and certainly on an international level and a global level, we we can't escape from the fact that we live in a global uh, community now, and and not one country can save us from this. Mm. Not one country's effort, even the big ones, can actually really sort of stop climate change in its in its path, and it means we all have to get on and and make a decision. And you know, it really is an aggregate effort of all nations. And I think that climate change negotiations are crucial for two reasons. And one, it's that uh, reduction targets can be set. And that has happened, but um, questionably how we've gone about that might might be uh, not, not as effective as it could have been. But also they provide um, evidence to other countries that they're also taking action. And that's a really big uh, component mm-hmm. of cooperation mm-hmm. is if you're seen to be doing all of the hard work and everyone else is sitting on their laurels not doing a lot, it's very, very hard to continue being motivated. And that is definitely the role that Mm -hmm. um, negotiations like Paris, but what we're probably going to cover over in the next few episodes is that that isn't enough, that we actually have to make sure that this works and that's effective. And that means we have to have strategies to ensure that that's the case. That's really interesting because if you think about it on a an everyday level. Imagine being in the office and you feel like you're the one that's doing all the work whilst everyone else is putting their feet up and just watching you. It's well, not long before you turn around and say, well, this isn't working for me. Absolutely. And and that's what these studies have pretty much uncovered. Um, I'll just do a little bit of a flick back into history of climate change negotiations because I think that context is important. So we started in Rio in 1992. This is before Kyoto. And more or less, what that achieved is everyone came to the table and accepted that climate change is a bit of an issue. That's really all we did in 1992. And then there's Kyoto, and I covered that in quite extensive detail uh, in the last episode, so I won't go too much into that. But then after that, in 2009, we had the Copenhagen Accord, which produced two major breakthroughs, but also two major setbacks. And the breakthroughs were, for the first time, international governments identified a threshold for dangerous anthropogenic interference of the climate system. And that's just a very technical term for basically humankind wrecking Mm -hmm. the, the planet. And so in that accord, governments agreed that it would be undesirable to allow global average temperature to exceed two degrees at pre-industrial levels. And that is is a the two degrees factor is thrown around a lot. And even though it could be debated, um, the, the significance of actually deciding on a number was really quite important. 
Uh, the second major breakthrough was for the first time uh, the world's biggest emitters agreed to cooperate to avoid dangerous climate change. But um, again, how well we've done uh, yeah. on that is, is debatable. OK, so I'm amazed. It was 2009. Is that right? The last time we had this? 2009 was the major, last major one. But yeah. this six years ago. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, I, it feels like last year, but anyway, the fact that it's six years ago is startling in its own right. But anyway, the point being that we don't have, you know, many chances at this because if they're held as infrequently as every six years, we have to do something positive in Paris this year. Absolutely essential. And as you said, our history is, is, is appalling. You know, our, our outcomes from these events is, is appalling. So, again, the cynic in me says we're going to go to Paris and we're going to do exactly what we've always done. Yeah. So how can we take what we potentially know in the world of, say, cooperation studies and social science and all those other things and put that into the mix so that there is absolutely no chance of us coming away from that shaking our head in frustration? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of studies and a lot of findings, and so we're probably just going to cover off on a few of them for today's purposes. Um, I think what's really interesting, and Mark Hurston's keynote uh, covered uh, this line of research in uh, what's called uh, behavioural economics, and they used uh, lab experiments where participants came in and they had to cooperate with one another to avoid a so-called catastrophe. And the purpose of these experiments really were to identify the different factors that spur as well as inhibit cooperation. And this is, you know, obviously relevant for settings like international climate change negotiations. So the results from these experiments have proved to be quite valuable and they've given us some insights in how we can actually better prepare for Paris uh, for the end of the year. Now, in particular, the problem for avoiding dangerous climate change has been uh, investigated using a task known as the collective risk social dilemma. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is very academic, and I'm going to try and make it really easy to digest. But basically, it's a game, and it was developed by Manfred Milansky a few years ago, and it involves the most basic of six players. And you can think of these players as those representing climate change negotiators mm -hmm. or representing different countries. Mm -hmm. And they're initially given 40 euros each. And on each climate round, they're asked to decide in private whether to invest zero, two or four euros in an account for climate protection. Now, if the combined investments at the end of all of the rounds equal to more than 120 euros, then it's said that dangerous climate change will be averted. Mm -hmm. And players get to keep any of the money that's left over when they didn't invest it into the account. So you can think of the investment that the players make into the climate count as being their contributions to emission reduction. And you can think of the target investment of 120 euros as a uh, symbol of the temperature threshold, such as two degrees, um, as identified in the Copenhagen Accord. However, what's important to know is if they don't meet that threshold, they don't get to keep any of their money. Okay, right. So they're incentivized, I guess, to be able to, to cooperate. Uh, one important factor uh, for this first experiment was that players weren't allowed to communicate at all in the game. And they didn't know each other. And they didn't know each other, and, and that's going to come into why that's important, because uh, we did one ourselves here at Lush. Um, and they only were made public at the end of each round. So at the end of each round, the players could see what others had put in or what the, the uh, growing total was, but that they um, didn't get that information till the end. So what was really super interesting is the first round, two people out of the 10 put in four euros, which is the most. 
um, three put in two and one player, let's call them the free rider, they decided not to put anything in. That was the first round. And yep. so round one gave 14 euros. In round two and three, not one player put in the maximum bid of four euros. And this is because they knew that after round one, not everyone had put in. Right. That's right. And two players decided now to be free riders uh, and put nothing into the account. So the, the free riders increased and no one was willing to go into maximum effort. In round four, the players putting in nothing into the climate accounts, so the free riders, went up to three. And by round six, a total of four free riding players opted to put nothing in. And the final two rounds of that game, not one player chose to put in any money into the climate account. And thus, the climate account ended up with 62 euros, which meant that everyone lost their money and catastrophe wasn't averted. And this experiment's been repeated around the world and definitely does hold some serious relevance for Paris, especially concerning the results uh, about perceived risk of dangerous climate change. But we did this. I made you guys do this this week here at Lush. And uh, here's a little clip about that will highlight what what went down uh, here at Lush. So I've grabbed six unsuspecting team members at Lush Digital and I've enticed them with some cash into a room, into our studio, where um, I'm going to try to replicate the collective risk dilemma. I'm not going to discuss climate change as I think that they, well, I know they all know James and I are passionate about this topic and kind of feel like that's going to influence the outcome, especially as James is one of my six hostages for the next 10 minutes. So. I'm going to explain, I'm just about to head into the studio now and explain the game to them. So we're going to include some cuts now. Okay, so there's real money up for grabs <laughs> if you guys succeed. So I explained the rules of the game to my temporary hostages and I replicated the collective risk game, but I converted the euros to Australian dollars and I made Ebola the threat. And as well as that, I had created some online polls that were linked to QR codes so that each round, they just simply scan the QR code, which brought up a bid amount for that round. And that was either zero, three or six Australian dollars. And they submitted that bid. And we then made a note of the total at the end of each of those rounds. So has everyone got the so QR each code got $60. Each, each of you got $60. So you just need to find round one. So do it now. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it will bring you up to a. Um, Do I have yep. And click on that. Yep. Click on the link. Okay. So. Okay. So, are you ready to vote? Yep. Uh, when's question one coming up? It should. That's it. It's this pledge for round one. Okay. Why have you got round three? Chance. <laughs> 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 that one. <laughs> So as soon as we all figured out uh, the technology, uh, we made the first bid for round one, uh, not without some hiccups. Did you do it too, Charlie? Someone didn't do it. Seven responses. Go away. So this is going to take all day if I play the audio, but I'm going to speed up the process and just go through the results that we got. Basically, we smashed the target. In rounds one and two... Half chose six dollars and half chose three. In round three, four chose six, two chose three, um, and we weren't seeing any zeros. By round four, all of them chose six, and by round six, we had already surpassed the target and we were at one hundred and eighty-three dollars. And by the end, we got to two hundred and fifty-two dollars, which, considering the target was one hundred and eighty, that is quite incredible. What I thought was interesting, though, is they knew in round six that they'd reached the target. 
And what was really interesting then for round seven, though, only two people <laughs> out of the six decided to uh, not to bid in at all. There were everyone else was still willing to contribute. And that didn't really change. Round eight was still only two people said nothing and everyone else was happy to contribute, whether it be six or, or three, even though they know that they'd made the, met the target. So essentially these people are foregoing their, their money because based on whatever ideology, reasoning, that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, and then in round nine, gradually that went to three people were saying, OK, I'm not going to bid in anything. But yet two were still pledging at six and one at three. And the final round, three people still pledged six dollars, one, three, and two, zero. So I think that what we can really take out of that experiment is there is no doubt that um, we didn't just meet it, they smashed it. But perhaps that could and has a lot to do with the fact that they know, respect, and trust each other. And that had they been, I guess, free riders, um, that would have implicated and affected the grief environment. And I think that's a really interesting thing to take away. Okay, so the the result's quite interesting. It obviously made a bit of a difference, the fact that we all know each other. And obviously, in general, when we all are under this roof, we all cooperate together. (laughs) Which meant that I think the, the, the figures are somewhat biased in that respect, because we're all used to cooperating, even subconsciously. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, we, we had accountability to to each other anyway. Out of out of the context of this social experiment, we knew who we, we knew each other, and we had to go and face each other in the uh, lunchroom afterwards. And if someone had been particularly greedy and not yes. and a free rider, we would have probably thought a little of bit less of them. Absolutely. So how can we apply that to to a, a Paris get together? Given that a lot of the people that will um, be sitting around, they will know of each other. You know, they'll be probably seeing each other on the rounds. Yeah, absolutely. I think what from our experiment, um, albeit it was you know probably flawed in in comparison to the, the ones that were done by universities, but um, it really highlighted to me that the need for trust and for for just um, being in a good space with each other. And if you look at the fallout of WikiLeaks and of Snowden, and what was happening with the US spying on Germany mm-hmm. and all of that. Those sort of conditions really will impact Paris. It will absolutely, if there is already levels of distrust, and we're seeing it with Putin, we're seeing it with all of the the big players, if there is that, uh, that they're not trusting each other, then there is going to be issues with this, and that can't be forgotten, that we more or less need to all be getting along for this to work. Because right. if there so, isn't... So before we start the discussion, we're going to have some team bonding. And we've got to... <laughs> do you know what I mean? But that yeah, is not yeah. going to happen. Hence why there is obviously that scepticism that we've, we've been there, done that, and it's going to lead to the same results. Yeah, listen, there is a lot of reasons to be super negative. Um, there's, there's a lot of reasons that, you know, we could fail here. And I think that that's more... Uh, important for us to take an active interest in Paris, even from a grassroots level, and and start to engage, uh, you know, local members of parliament or even on social media with with pressure. I think if the government realises that we're paying attention and we're not going to let them get away with not putting in massive effort, then there is a real chance that the, us as the as the po- general population can actually really seriously influence the outcomes of uh, COP twenty one. And I think. Also, it's important to uh, understand that there are examples of us being able to cooperate. We just need to do it using the outcomes of these sort of researches and and understanding what are the reasons why we might fail. Mm. And I think that that's more or less what they're talking about here. Is like, so we've just covered off on trust and and actually having a being in a good space and also the impact of free riders 
And when you can see someone that's not really pulling their efforts in, then it's going to demotivate you for trying even harder. Yeah, but if we take that option out, do you know what I mean? If you, there is no option. You cannot, you yeah. cannot freeload. You, you base, we're all in this together. We have one planet. Yeah, yeah. So that, that brings a whole nother, um, opens a whole nother can of worms because that becomes, well, if everyone doesn't have a choice and it needs to be policed and currently... We don't have anyone policing it. Correct. There is no trade sanctions. There is no mm. uh, implications. At the moment, you only have to give one year's notice if you want to pull out of the treaty or that was the case with Kyoto. Um, and there's no fines. There's no sanctions. No one's going to tell you off. So I can basically put my hand in the till whilst yep. everyone else is working hard and, and there's no punishment for that. Absolutely, and countries like Australia are a prime example of people that are likely to do that because we've got a lot of natural resources. Yeah. It will be better for our economic growth for us to continue using the fossil fuels. Um, and we have these resources, whereas like countries in Europe that don't have those natural resources have nothing to lose. They, they've, got every, well, they've got everything to lose. And they don't have these resources. They're relying on Putin and they're relying on the gas from Russia, which is why they've invested so much in renewables, which is fabulous. But for countries like Australia, who can be inclined not to really care all that much, um, if there aren't sanctions there to, to sort of promote and um, force our hand a little bit, it won't happen. And then as soon as you get a big player like Australia not really putting in their full efforts, mm-hmm. That effect is just That's, humongous. And it changes everything. What about this perceived risk of dangerous climate change on cooperation? Yeah, so that's another one. And, and Tony Abbott's a great example of it. Basically, that that's a factor that affects corporations. And it's around the idea that, is there really a risk? Is the science real? Is it really a threat? And can you know politicians for for whatever vested interest that they have throw sort of some um confusion around the science itself and if there is doubt and confusion we absolutely know that cooperation is negatively affected that's so and it's not hard to sow seeds of doubt absolutely not and that and it's such a great example because that's what they've been doing um so I mean, australia is particularly backwards in that regard so there was a second study uh, that that covered this and what they did was they manipulated the probability of dangerous climate change occurring in the task so they had three risk conditions they had a low risk condition which meant if the group failed to meet the threshold there'd be a 10 percent chance that dangerous climate change would occur they had a moderate risk condition, which meant that if the groups didn't make 120 euros, there'd be a 50% of climate change mm-hmm. ha- um, happening. And there was a high risk condition, which meant 90%. They were pretty sure that climate change catastrophe was going to happen if they didn't meet the threshold. So as you might expect, the group that felt that there was only a 10% risk of climate change disaster if they didn't meet the target, not one group actually made the target, which, you know, makes sense, right? Yeah. And when that risk went from 10 to 50%, um, only one of the 10 groups actually made the quota. (laughs) And when groups were told that there was a 90% chance of climate change disaster, um, well, it turns out only half. (laughs) This is is so frightening. It's really, really terrifying. (laughs) And I think the lesson that can be taken from that is that, you know, there is a necessary condition that we convince countries of the very high almost certain probability of dangerous climate change Mm. and if they believe in a lower probability at all um then that will absolutely hamper effects so we need to go into paris saying there is a hundred percent chance that we are going to have you know catastrophic change unless we all cooperate absolutely and and there are um bodies like the ipcc who 
um, have been accused by various different countries that they're, um, you know, sort of being alarmists. But it's pretty accepted by the science community that, in fact, if anything, they're pretty modest in in their predictions. And so, so long as we're allowing governments to sort of or, or private sectors to sort of throw in that that a little bit of doubt, even that ten percent of doubt, yeah. it's it's having an impact of a fifty percent. Uh-huh. It's it's huge. It's absolutely huge. Right. Okay. So I guess, I mean, you can derive from all of this that uncertainty is inescapable and such an integral Well, the, part. the trouble is as well, it, it's not as though um, we, we see change from one day to another. Yeah. So it's difficult to say, well, it's, it's definitely changing. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a you know, 100% chance that it's changing because our world doesn't work like that. It doesn't go yeah. from one extreme to another on a daily basis. No, it doesn't. Um, and I mean, I think also you've got to factor in uncertainty when we're talking about it whether it's evidence-based from looking outside the window or how it's impacting you. Because obviously islands, um, you know, in uh, Polynesia that literally will be wiped out if the the, Clyde, the tides are right. They're, they're different in terms of how they see this as an issue to people that are in mountains, right? <laughs> like they see this threat differently and they're, they're going to have a different... And that's the inequality that we probably will cover off on another podcast. Um but I think also you, there's that uncertainty about financial in- outcomes mm. and how, you know, if we do p- surpass the 2% threshold, how's that going to impact mm. us financially? And there's no, there's not been any consensus on this. And again, wherever there's doubt, wherever there's sort of potential no one really knows, then people aren't motivated. Because if you don't know and yeah. no, none of the best scientists can tell you how much it's going to cost you, then it's just another reason to sort of think, well, I don't know if the effort's worth it. Yeah. And it's going to damage our economy. Yeah. But, but that is the excuse that governments will always be throwing around because to them it is number one uh, on their agenda is protecting the economy because that's what they're generally um, voted in on. And and this sort of brings me to um, I think probably our last experiment that we'll cover off in this podcast. So they, there's another game where they had 10 players instead of six and the players are allocated 31 euros. And the 31 euros are divided into two accounts, an operating fund of 11 euros and an endowment fund of 20 euros. Now, the operating fund can be used to invest in weak or strong abatement by purchasing chips. If that makes sense, just think about it as carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. So there are 10 chips corresponding to weak abatements and 10 to strong. And the weaker chips cost 0.1 euro and the stronger abatement chips cost 1 euro. So the players contribute over 10 rounds to reduce emissions by purchasing the chips using the money from their operating fund. The endowment, however, can't be touched and it's only really included to make sure that they don't go bankrupt. The game was played in three stages and the first is the communication stage, which is where it starts getting interesting. The players were able to talk to themselves and um, let themselves know whether they were willing to contribute on that particular round. Then the players were able to receive the feedback and have a chat about, you know, you're not putting in enough and all that sort of stuff. And then finally, the contribution stage started where players actually pledged their contributions. Now, what they manipulated for this study was that they had four different types of groups and they uh, changed the the types of uncertainty in these groups. And I know this is complex. I hope everyone's keeping Mm -hmm. up. But uh, in one of the groups, the uncertainty condition was the target for the 10th round was 150 euros. And if they fail to reach that threshold, they'll lose 15 euros, which will be deducted from their endowment. Another group were told that they had to reach the thresholds of 150 euros, but that they would lose between 10 to 20 euros. Yeah. So there was a range then if mm-hmm. they failed. 
The next condition is called threshold uncertainty. And here players are told that they have to reach a level of investment between 100 and 200 euros. And so that there is uncertainty in terms of the target. And the fourth condition, the authors manipulate both the impact and the threshold. So there's, there's total uncertainty. There is no consistency. Now, the results were really interesting. In a certain condition where people knew exactly what the threshold is and exactly what the consequences would be for not crossing the threshold, 80% of the groups avoided catastrophe. Wow. Yeah. In the impact uncertainty where the te- um, all 10 groups successfully were able to avoid catastrophe, so whether they, even if they weren't really entirely certain of the impact, they were still able to avoid. But the key result was the threshold of uncertainty and only one group were able to avoid crossing dangerous threshold and that's when they knew nothing, there was no certainty at all. Interestingly, combining impact and threshold, uncertainty doesn't impact cooperation. In fact, it actually slightly improves it. So we're thinking um, when we're given a range, people focus on the worst case scenario. And uh, the key finding is that uncertainty about the threshold of dangerous interference is a major barrier to to cooperation. And, And yet in Copenhagen, what we decided on was not a range, was a specific two degrees. Well, the findings actually suggest we should really be talking between yep. one to three. Okay. Is there something positive that we can take from this? Because this this sounds like if, if, if we do go with more certainty and we put some more, uh, I don't know, sort of extreme conditions in there, people will potentially react the way we want. Yeah, I mean, what it what it means, and there was a few other studies that are done on this, and we'll include it in the blog if people are, are more in, interested in, in following this up. But um, it seems that just even a small amount of uncertainty in relation to the threshold for dangerous climate change affects cooperation significantly. Yeah. So if we can take that into Paris, and we know, well, actually, we should be talking about when it comes to how much we have to pledge, that should be fixed because yeah. that increases. Uh, so everyone has a target, whether it's relative to GDP or whatever it might be, um, that that's very fixed and certain. The second you add a range in that, people cooperation just drops. But also when you're talking thresholds, when it seems to be when that's really definite, then actually cooperation in, isn't as good as when we give that a range. Because the reality is human nature is to think, well, yeah. if the climate could be three, mm. and most scientists agree that three is, is absolute catastrophe. Okay. We cannot survive mm. at three degrees. So that, that two degrees actually might have been a bit of an impediment. And if we can bring that into Paris, that knowledge, and, mm-hmm. and reset that threshold, <laughs> then again, that might help uh, cooperation overall, which... You know, frankly, we, we can't afford not to be successful. It is so interesting, Charlie, what you've discovered here. I mean, this is where I suppose you use social science experiments that have been carried on, and we use it for the greater good here because this is the evidence. This is the evidence that we're, we, we so need because without doubt, if we don't bring what we're just discussing into the mix, we are going to go through exactly the same for all the reasons that you've just explained. Absolutely, and more. I mean, I think we'll cover it off in the next few episodes. I think the fact that we're not policing and there is no yep. sanctions, you know, there's no consequences. And not having consequences is a serious yep. issue. Um, we, you know, we're both parents and you raise your kids, you know if they're not going to stop doing something, uh, you know, whether it's cleaning the room or whatever, if there is no consequences, they're just going to continue to do it. Like if you just sort of say, well, you should tidy your room, but I'm not really going to do anything, yep. um, they're never, ever going to do it. So in order to sort of encourage, you know, and motivate countries to to change their behaviours, we've got to have consequences, and currently that doesn't exist.
But also, you know, as I said, this is some of the factors. There's inequality factors, which we'll cover off on another time. Yeah. And there's also intergenerational issues. So the fact that I'm never going to see the results of my effort. Therefore, does it really, really affect me? That's right. I'm on my way out. You know, so what? Yeah, right. But that's when we've got to look at human instinct and say, actually, we're naturally programmed to, to bring new children into the world and their children and their children. So we have to look at that. Yeah, that's going to be the challenge, is mm. trying to motivate us and position it. Um, and so I think we'll cover in that in, in greater detail. In but this podcast. is such an interesting conversation, Charlie. Thank you so much for, for, for digging all this evidence up. And it's a vital one to, to have, you know, regardless of all the science. We've got to look at human behaviour yeah. because it is human beings that are getting together in, in, in Paris. And it's human beings, these important human beings, that are effectively holding the destiny of our planet in their hands. Absolutely. And if there's any takeaway for this podcast, I mean, we like to focus on, you know, actionable things here that you can do that, that makes an effort. My suggestion for this week is is simply get on social media and start following pages that are putting governments, not just in Australia, but across the world, into account on for COP21. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the more likes on a particular page about this topic sends a very strong message to to the governments from around the world that we're watching and we care and we're paying attention. And that might not seem like a massive amount of effort. It's not getting out on the streets. It's not, you know, selling your house and living 100% eco-friendly. Yeah. It's it's literally just showing the governments that we're, we're paying attention. And I, that does have a role to mm. play, absolutely. On that cheerful note, yes. um, thank you, Charlie. Um, do share this. Do, do do keep the conversation going. And thank you for all, all your interest so far in the podcast and, and the website. And um, we'll continue with episode six, same time next week. Till then, thank you. You've been listening to Disrupting Disaster, proudly brought to you by Lush Digital Media. This is your journey too. Let's continue this conversation together. Until next week. <laughs>